This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. G'day everyone, it's Nikki Shea. Welcome to this week's edition of The Road Less Travelled podcast, where we take you on adventures, trips and journeys all around Australia, some road trips that you might like to do over the weekend, or if you've got a week away, a month away, or as I always say, if you're doing the big lap around Australia, we hope that the Road Less Travelled podcast gives you a little bit of a taste of adventure of what you can expect and some places that perhaps you could put down on your bucket list of things to do. Got to say a big massive thanks to everyone who's tuned into the show and given us some great feedback and some also some trips that they've done that they say hey you must uh, do this trip yourself and give a bit of a shout out to everyone else to put uh, on their list of places to go so thank you very much for interacting with us and if you haven't done so and you'd like to follow us on social media jump onto the road less traveled facebook page you can also follow us on instagram too and our website is fatcatmedia.com.au you can shoot me an email which is fatcat at iinet.net.au or give me an SMS or a phone call on 042 752 A big shout-out to the team down at Radio Bayside in the Bayside suburbs of Melbourne for taking on the Road Less Travel podcast as part of their regular programming. So a massive thanks. You can follow them on radiobayside.com. So massive thanks to Artie Stevens and the team down there. You can listen to the show as well, yeah, as you are right now, but you can do so by checking out Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio and Spotify and each week I put the links where you can listen to the show up on the notes with where we release it on our Facebook page the Road Less Travel podcast just do a search on Facebook and as I said you can follow the show and what we do with Fat Cat Media on the website too enough rambling on this week we're heading back to New South Wales you would have known if you listened to last week's episode we travelled from Albury up to Wagga Wagga uh, and finished up at Tamora. We headed from Tamora. The next stop on the list was to Cootamundra. So follow us on the road less travelled. We're in New South Wales. So Cootamundra in New South Wales. You can find out more about this place by visiting the website, which is visit au. And as one of Australia's oldest towns... Cootamundra has a rich and proud history and it's bursting with stories to tell. The architecture, rail and agricultural history have long been the focal points of this town's industrial history and celebrated at the Cootamundra Museum, it's a heritage museum, and Bradman's birthplace memorabilia cottage as well. Now the town has a rich railway history, the Bathungra Rail spiral is exactly that it's a spiral in the railway line heritage listed in april 1999 the bathungra rail spiral is built on the main south line between june and cootamundra the line itself was graded at one in 40 for sydney trains which imposed a massive limitation on train loads through the area and also caused a lot of congestion as the bank engines were attached when the line was duplicated in the 1940s there was an 8.9 kilometer spiral deviation that was built and this spiral makes use of the local geography and the shape of a convenient hill which the uphill line spirals around and has short tunnels. Now the spiral increased the distance travelled by uphill or northbound trains by about two kilometres and southbound or downhill trains continue to use the original line. The ruling gradient of the new uphill line is one in 66. The spiral is proposed to be bypassed by the Inland Railway Project on a new alignment with an easier grade by the year 2025. Now, Kudapundra Railway Station, it was opened in uh, November 1877 when the main south line was extended from Harden, 
Less than five months later, the line again was extended to Bathungra on the 15th of April the following year, 1878, and on the 1st of June, 1886, the town became a junction station where the Tumut and Kunama line opened as far as Gundagai. In the year of 1901, an island platform was erected which has since been closed but still remains there today, and some 40 years later, in 1943, the line through Kutamundra was duplicated, and that made it the largest overhead signal gantry in the southern hemisphere. Now, this has since been relocated, but it still stands proud at the station surrounds. The station's building is a Type 5, if you're a train spotter, first-class brick station, which originally dating from 1884 with various alterations in 1904, 1915 and 1943. The station itself, it is a huge complex with a heap of uh, buildings and heritage-listed buildings, and it's an unusually designed first-class station building not seen anywhere else. And when I say that, well, it reflects on both the town's landscape and the development of the railway. The railway yard extends almost a full length of the town along its eastern boundary, which really creates a major element in the development of the town. The station building and its major platforms awning are all of particular significance, and they have amazing detail in both the building and the cast iron columns and the brackets of the canopy. Make sure you do visit it because it is absolutely fantastic to have a look at. It was listed on the New South Wales Heritage Register in 1999, and Cootamundra is served by two daily New South Wales train links, uh, train link services in each direction. There's numerous coach services available too, so make sure that you do check it out at Cootamundra. That is the uh, heritage-listed railway station there. Now, those who love their cricket and some Aussie culture, the Bradman's Birthplace Museum is a must-see at Cootamundra. It's situated at 89 Adams Street and is complemented by the memorabilia cottage at 87 Adams Street. It was the initiative of the Cootamundra Shire Council to purchase and develop these sites for future generations. Now, Granny Schultz, the midwife who delivered the greatest batsman in the world has ever known, Sir Donald Bradman, on the 27th of August 1908, she operated a small private hospital in the front room of the house. The building was refurbished in 1991 and now his birthplace has been lovingly restored with the official opening on the 23rd of October 1992. The birthplace cottage rather, contains memorabilia of Sir Donald um, and of I guess, of cricket and also of the Cootamundra district too. Now, the property next door to Bradman's birthplace, called Memorabilia Cottage, contains nostalgic display of curios, bric-a-brac and Australian memorabilia, much of which dates back to the era when Donald Bradman was born. The adjoining property houses a collection of memorabilia that is on loan to the council from Peter and Jenny Cash. They created a collection over a number of years and have painstakingly taken every opportunity to increase their collection. It is a great site to see and will bring back plenty of memories for most people. And you can check it out. The admission's $5, open most days, 9 to 5, except Christmas Day and Good Friday. And you can find it at 87 and 89 Adam Street in Cootamundra. Now, Cootamundra is a scenic road trip from Sydney or Melbourne. It's only two hours drive northwest of Canberra when you can also take the train from Sydney or Melbourne or fly into Wagga Wagga Airport and rent a car for the 70-minute drive northeast to Cootamundra, a great base for exploring the Riverina. Cootamundra's accommodation includes holiday cottages, motels, hotels. There's a converted church as well and a caravan park that's a short walk from the town centre. So make sure that you do check out Cootamundra, a lovely little place right in the heart of central New South Wales. From Cootamundra, though, we were on a bit of a tight ship as far as our uh, schedule and itinerary was concerned. We headed in sort of 
northeast up towards Young. Young in the southwest slopes of the regions of New South Wales, the largest town in the Hilltops region, known for the Lambing Flat um, Chinese riots during the mining revolution up that way. Post office opened in 1861 and was renamed Young in 1863. It is marketed too as the cherry capital of Australia and every year hosts the National Cherry Festival. You can pick up, if you love cherries, you can pick up cherries all along the drive up the Olympic Highway because there is a little roadside stalls, there's big big actual cherry uh, manufacturing plants and all kinds of stuff and you can get plenty of cherries that is for sure for sure it's approximately two hours drive from Canberra it's in a valley with surrounding hills and it's named after Sir John Young the governor of New South Wales from 1861 to 1867 and as I mentioned it was uh, from 1862 to 1861 there was anti-Chinese miners which attacked the Chinese gold miners in the area now known as the infamous Lambing Flat Riots and as gold became scarce European miners began to resent what they saw as the greater success of the more industrious Chinese and hence many Chinese miners were attacked, robbed and subsequently killed. The anti-Chinese rebels rallied in numbers up to 3,000 and eventually the rioters were controlled. Chinese miners had their claims restored to them but the New South Wales Parliament passed the Chinese Immigration Bill which restricted the number of Chinese that could be brought into New South Wales on any ship and imposed a tax per head on entry. And I must say too, that uh, did you know that Young was the first town in Australia to install electricity into the streets and homes of the township? Tamworth in New South Wales had installed electricity to the streets only the previous year. So Young is a lovely little place to visit, in particular the Lambing Flat Chinese Tribute Gardens. You must visit those. They, uh, the Young Shire Council established the Lambing Flat Chinese Tribute Gardens adjacent to the site of the Chinaman's Dam, which was an old railway dam, approximately 4 k south of Young. The gardens are intended to create a real ambience similar to the Japanese gardens at Cowra, which we'll get to a little bit later in this edition. Chinaman's Dam, with an initial capacity of over uh, 9,100 cubic metres when it was in railway use, is situated at a hamlet called Pitstone on Sawpit Gully. The ban, the ban, the dam was built in the 1860s by German brothers from Hanover to provide water for the sluicing of their Victoria Hill gold claims. At some time in the 1870s, the brothers sold the area, including the dam, to a Chinese group who worked the site. Now, this dam was used as a railway facility from 1882 when the New South Wales Railway Commissioners gave notice of the intention to build the first part of the Blamely Demadrill Railway, and that was to provide water for its steam locomotives, and the commissioners decided to provide a dam and pump water from uh, from that to a facility known as Young Tank at the 396 kilometre post. It's not known whether the railways enhanced the existing dam or if they actually built a new facility. So from 1885 to 1901, the locos stopped at Young Tank to replenish their water, and in 1901, the watering facilities were built at Young Station. Now, the supply of water was obtained from Chinaman's Dam. The capacity of the dam was enlarged in 1911, and the dam was a popular spot for swimming, and whilst officially frowned upon, it was also tolerated. Following the connection of the Southwest Tablelands Water Supply Scheme, which provided water from Bunyuk Dam, the railway ceased to draw water from Chinaman's Dam after 1936, and the site was returned to the Crown in 1962, and in the following year, a 15-hectare or 36-acre reserve was established, and the Shire Council was appointed as trustees. 
the dam has since been enlarged. So I really recommend that you check out the Lambing Flat Chinese Tribute Gardens. You'll see massive big signs. You can't miss it, but do certainly put it on the list to check out if you're travelling through Young. For us, though, as I said earlier, the the itinerary was quite short. The next destination where we decided to stop and um, was one that was certainly on my bucket list to find out more about was Cowra in New South Wales. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll delve more into the history of Cowra. Back with more in just a moment. You're listening to the Road Less Travel Podcast with me, Nikki Shea. With over 15 years commentating throughout Western Australia and Australian motocross and motorsports, Fat Cat Media prides itself on providing sound industry knowledge plus versatile media experiences, and our commentators can interpret what's happening on and off the track with reliable information obtained from within the industry when it happens and as it happens. Fat Cat Media's trackside commentators have the ability to develop a perspective on the subject through research, experience, interviews, and of course by attending events. Welcome back to this week's show. This week coming to you from the central New South Wales area as we make our way up to from Young up to Cowra. That's where we're at at the moment. Cowra in New South Wales, you can discover a wealth of experience, the great outdoors, vineyards, adventure and hot air ballooning as well. Cowra has a number of true country experiences from relaxing along the extensive waterways to exploring the tranquil Japanese garden. You can take a trip down memory lane and experience Cowra's fascinating history from the days of steam trains to the largest prisoner of war breakout in Australia and modern day military history. Food and wine buffs can tour Cowra's boutique vineyards to sample the superb local food and wine which is available and we're better to enjoy the fine wine and delicious food than right in the heart of where it's actually produced. Cowra too has a real vibrant and expanding retail and commercial centre. It boasts the services that you pretty much would expect to find in a larger town while still retaining that wonderful feeling of country hospitality. So make sure that you do visit Cowra and discover what it means to escape and you can find out more by heading to the website which is visitcowra.com.au. At 1.50am on the clear moonlight night of August the 5th, 1944, the largest prisoner of war breakout in modern military history occurred at Cowra in New South Wales. More than 1,000 Japanese prisoners launched a mass suicide attack on their guards, Australian soldiers of the 22nd Garrison. To the Japanese, the disgrace of capture could finally be overcome by dying in armed battle. They were armed with crude weapons, four groups each approximately 300 Japanese, they threw themselves onto barbed wire fences and into the firing line of the Vickers machine guns. Protected only by baseball mitts, blankets and coats and using their comrades as a human bridge to cross the tangled barbed wire, more than 350 Japanese clawed their way to freedom. All escapees were captured during the following week. A total of 107 prisoners of war were wounded, 234 prisoners died along with five Australian soldiers. From the tragedy of war and the Kaura breakout came a long-lasting friendship between the people of Kaura and the nation of Japan. There is much in Kaura today which serves as, a, as serves as a reminder of these events too. And today the Kaura Prisoner of War campsite is full of interpretive signage to really help you visualise and understand what once stood at this very picturesque part of Kaura. You can stand under the replica guard tower with an audio presentation which will certainly bring the scene to life. The POW Hologram Theatre, which is located within the Cowra Visitor Information Centre, this tells the story of the Cowra breakout and its aftermath. 
The story of Claire, the local girl, is an inspiration and the display simply is amazing. It is a must-see for any visitor, as is also the home of Australia's World Peace Bell, which is located in Civic Square. The Australian World Peace Bell is a replica of the one that stands in the forecourt of the United Nations headquarters in New York, and it serves as a reminder of the continual need for all nations, I guess, to work to peace. The Australian World Peace Bell was awarded to Cowra in 1992 for its long-standing contribution to world peace and international understanding. It's the only world peace bell in the world that is not located in a city. The Kaura Japanese Garden is simply stunning. It sits on five hectares and it's a strolling garden, the largest of its type in the Southern Hemisphere. The garden was officially opened in 1979 and it really does remain a place of peace and a symbol of reconciliation between Australia and Japan. The garden is connected to the site of the breakout and the former prisoner of war camp by Sukara Avenue, translating to Cherry Tree Avenue in English. This commemorative drive connects the Kaura Japanese Garden with the site of the POW camp and continues to the Australian and Japanese War Cemetery. There's additional monuments attributed to the Kaura breakout, which include the Garrison Gates and the Kaura in, uh, Italy, rather, Friendship Monument. You can find it at Sakura Avenue in Cowra. And for more information, jump onto the, um, the visitcowra.com.au website for further information. And what was important, it was important for me personally, is to be able to wander through um, the actual Cowra uh, prison camp site. It's quite. I was quite surprised by how large it actually was. We we could drive through it. It was um, when we visited visited there. We had the uh, had Rocco with us, the uh, the wonder dog. So he stayed in the car. But uh, it was a massive site, um, and you can there's, you can drive all the way through it and do it at your leisure. There's also a Cowra breakout commemorative sculpture that was um, designed by the local artist for the 75th anniversary of the Cowra breakout. It's a five panel sculpture situated in the POW camp and the four panels depict the aspects of the Cowra breakout of the war camp over its six-year life from 1941 to 1947. There's an Australian soldier on guard, there's Japanese playing baseball, Italians and their love of music and the Indonesians, Indonesian rather, mothers and children. The relatively calm time was shattered of course by the early morning of the 5th of August 1944, the breakout resulting in the deaths of 234 Japanese and five Australian soldiers. There is also, too, the POW Theatre. It's a nine-minute hologram that recounts the tragic story of the Cowra breakout. The theatre is housed in a small tin replica of a hut found on the Cowra prisoner of, camp, prisoner of war camp during World War II. The hologram tells the story of the Cowra breakout through the eyes of Claire, who was a young Cowra local. The presentation is aimed at raising awareness, really, of the historical significance of Cowra in modern military history and to encourage visitation to other local attractions and locations, too, of historical importance. It is a must-see for all visitors to the town. And the famous POW Hologram Theatre is the best place to really start the historical journey through the Cowra region. And it's open from 9 till, f- 9 till 5, um, except Christmas Day, and it's free and they do sort of ask for donations. Established in 1964, the War Cemetery is the only Japanese war cemetery to be retained in Australia. There are 523 graves of the Japanese War Cemetery containing the remains of the 231 Japanese soldiers who were killed in the breakout and all Japanese nationals who died on Australian soil during World War II. Now, before 1964, the Japanese cemetery had been cared for, informally rather, by the members of the Kaura RSL sub-branch who kept the lawns mowed and the weeds in check. 
This was done as a mark of respect for the fallen soldiers at a time when there were mixed feelings and mixed emotions concerning the Japanese. And today you are encouraged to pay your respects at this very solemn place and you'll find that at Doncaster Drive in Cowra. There's also Indonesian graves. There were 1,200 Indonesian internees held at the Cowra POW camp during World War II. There were two groups, the first being merchant navy sailors and the second being nationalists who'd been exiled to what is now Iranian Jarrah, the Dutch New Guinea, after they'd been involved in the 1926 uprising. The Dutch government thought that the nationalists would link up with the invading Japanese forces and were able to convince the Australian government to ship the men, women and children to Australia for internment. The Indonesian memorial is made up of the graves of 13 Indonesian political detainees who died in the Kaua POW camp while being held on behalf of the Dutch East Indies government in the early years of World War II. In 1997, the Indonesian government erected a memorial to these people at the general section of the Kaua Cemetery. It was thought that the Jan Lingard from the School of Asian Studies at the University of Sydney that this story was revealed. It's accessible at all times and admission is free. That too is located at Doncaster Drive in Cowra. Now, Cowra's connection to Italy is one of a powerful one that's forged through wartime and peaceful connections too. The striking Cowra Italy Friendship Monument, which was unveiled in 1997, that is a symbol of the unity on two fronts. Firstly, it commemorates the Italians who, during World War II, served on the side of the Allies. The Italian POWs lodged at the POW camp at Cowra, and Italian and Australian service personnel who lost their lives to their country. Secondly, the Cowra Italy Friendship Monument, which you will find at the eastern end of Kendall Street, serves to celebrate the involvement of the Italians in the evolution of Cowra's rich cultural environment. You'll find it at Fred Arnold Park in Kendall Street in Cowra. And resolutely standing guard within Cowra's residential area on the corner of Binnie Creek Road and Amaru Avenue, you'll find the Garrison Gates. Now, the brick structures mark the original entrance to the headquarters of the 22nd Garrison Battalion, the unit which was responsible for the day-to-day operation of the Cowra POW camp. Today, though, the garrison gates are flanked by Rosemary in a sign of remembrance and commemoration, and you can take a moment to stop by the gates on your way to Cowra's other wartime monuments. They stand as one of the few physical remnants of the POW camp that is still intact today. Accessible at all time, and of course, admission is free. Now, you can visit the Lone Pine Park, which we did. Connections to our past are vitally key to the future too. And in Lone Pine Park, opposite the Cowra Visitor Information Centre, you'll find a tree that was propagated from a pine seed off the famous Lone Pine at Gallipoli. The story goes that at least two Australian soldiers pocketed cones and seeds from Lone Pine Ridge during those horror days of World War I. And on bringing these seeds back to Australia, they tended them and grew them near trees in remembrance of their fallen comrades. One tree was presented to the Australian War Memorial, and now known as Lone Pine Tree, and the Cowra RSL sub-branch also received a tree, and they planted it in what is now known as the Lone Pine Park. The Battles of Gallipoli, where Australia lost more than 2,000 soldiers, remind us of the heroism and the mateship that is ingrained into the Australian spirit. You can take a moment to remember them at the foot of the Tree of Hope. Open time, accessible at all times, and admission is free, and it's at the corner of the Midwestern Highway and the Lachlan Valley Way in Cowra. Now... Cowra has a mixed history um, and it's uh, both military and migrant campsites there too. It's marked by stories of the military and migrants from World War II. 
Now, between 1940 and 1945, there was around 80,000 Australian troops that received basic training at the Cowra facility. And after the war, the camp became home to between 17,000 to 19,000 immigrants who left their war-ravaged Europe to make their new home in Australia. So whilst the campsite itself on the eastern side of town is now private land, a memorial has been erected in honour of the migrant families of Cowra at Europa Park, east of Cowra, on the Sydney Road. There is also a memorial on military parade to mark the location of the military camp there. There is a collection of family stories from former residents of the Cowra Migrant Camp that is recorded rather as Australia, a new country, a new life, compiled by the Cowra and District Historical Society. The book too is available at the Cowra Visitor Information Centre. And of course, if you want more information, contact the Cowra Visitor Information Centre. 02-6342-4333 is their phone number. They've got a, a, a email address to info, info rather at cowratourism.com.au. Welcome back to The Road Less Travel this week, coming to you from central New South Wales. We've done the journey from Cootamundra up through Young, and we're at Cowra. I'm spending plenty of time at Cowra, one of my places on my little bucket list that I wanted to tick off. And back in 1922 at Cowra, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith and a Cowra man known as Mr Ken Richards flew under the Cowra traffic bridge. And one can only imagine that there wouldn't have been the amount of traffic that there would be today that there was in 1922. During the First World War, Ken Richards was the observer in Kingsford Smith's plane in France. And after the war, Richards became the proprietor of a garage in Macquarie Street, Cowra. Kingsford Smith owned an old Avro 540 plane, which he flew up to Cowra to see Richards. He landed in a paddock near the railway station just over the creek, and the landing received considerable publicity and became a topic of conversation amongst the residents throughout the town and the local hotels, since the plane was quite a novelty in Cowra in 1922. I'm sure it was. This then sometimes started a rumour that Kingsford Smith was going to fly under the local traffic bridge. So inevitably, others contradicted this, saying he wouldn't be going to do it and that it was too dangerous. The story of the argument reached Kingsford Smith's ears and he decided to try it. He asked Mr Richards if he was going to try it with him and he replied, all right, we'll give it a go and I'll be with you. Kingsford Smith pointed out that it was a dangerous thing to try and do, but he thought he could make it. They then kept the attempt secret, and next morning after breakfast, they took off and circled over the town. The plane apparently was not particularly high-powered and had a fair show rate, a slow rate of climb, rather. This meant that they'd have to have trouble getting sufficient height to clear the trees on the bank where the river curved after flying under the bridge. Consequently, they couldn't make it in a normal straight flight down the river. So in order to get up sufficient power to climb over the trees again, they had to come down in a steep power dive from a couple of thousand feet, pull up just under the water at high over the water rather at high speed so that he can go under the water flick through the pylons and climb rapidly again so after getting sufficiently height after getting sufficient height rather Kingsford Smith pushed the stick forward and the plane dived down vibrating but gathering speed it needed brilliant flying to level out at the right height since if the stick was pulled back too fast the plane would have squashed into the water at a high speed stall into the bargain the plane could only just fit between the pylons but they made it with about seven foot about 18, no, 7 inches, about 18 centimetres to spare on either side. 
they both relaxed and the plane steadily climbed back up the sky again. Then Kingsford Smith decided he'd try the railway bridge further up the river. They got plenty of height and started the power dive again. Now Richards was looking intently at the bridge when he suddenly spotted telephone lines crossing the river just beside the bridge. He yelled at Kingsford Smith but the latter was concentrating on his flying and he didn't hear him. So he grabbed him by the shoulder and gestured upwards. They'd flown together during the war and had confidence in each other's judgment. So Kingsford Smith, he didn't hesitate. He pulled the plane out of the dive and started the steep climb. The plane just scraped over the top of the bridge. And afterwards, when Richards tied him with the telephone lines, Kingsford Smith said, just as well you saw them in time, mate, or we otherwise we wouldn't be alive now. A few seconds later, we couldn't have pulled out of it. Sometime later, Kingsford Smith took off again with George Campbell as his passenger and flew up to Mr. Coward's property at Riversley. Mr. Campbell was the brother of Mr. R.B. Campbell, who was a well-known cowra man at the time and was no relation to Mr. George Campbell, who was the Cowra Aero Club instructor. They landed in a paddock at Riversley. However, when they went to take off again, a wheel went down <laughs> into a rabbit warren and the plane tipped on its nose. It did, though, suffer considerable structural damage, so they left it there and came back to Cowra by ground transport. The plane was left standing on its nose in the paddock for several weeks. Then it was brought into Cowra by a truck and dismantled. Richard stated that some of the parts of the old plane should still be around Cowra in the 1950s. The last time Richards was in a plane was in 1933. Kingsford Smith had just uh, flown the Pacific Ocean in the Southern Cross and had become a national hero. He took Richards from Cowra to Bathurst in the Southern Cross plane and Richards said later that was the last time I ever saw him alive. Other accounts of the event tell how there were people on the bridge at the time. There was apparently a farmer with a cart and a husband and a pregnant wife and when the plane flew under the bridge the horse bolted and the wife gave birth on the bridge. Kingsford Smith was only a young man at the time was apparently drunk when he did this if sober he may not have attempted it and this story is apparently too also retold in more detail in peter fitzsimmons his autobiography of a kingsford smith so in the heart of central new south wales make sure that you visit cowra and you can do that online too by visit cowra.com.au plenty of accommodation whether you want a farm stay you want motel accommodation if you want to do a b&b or caravan park there's plenty of options available too hotels and motels we chose to stay at the cowra van park which you can find at 2a lachlan street in cowra and they have a website caravanpark.com.au pet friendly which was uh, a fantastic place for us relaxing spot by the river in cowra next week we'll continue on our journey in central new south wales and we'll head up towards where i guess some would say the holy grail of motorsport in australia is at bathurst and we'll take you for a trip around not only just bathurst but uh, some great little locations thereabouts. so please continue to join us for our trip around central new south wales where we wrap it up next week on the road less travel trust that you've enjoyed this week's edition and we've paid homage to what happened at the cowra breakout in 1944 that's it for this week's show We'll catch up with you next week when we wrap up the adventures into central New South Wales. My name's Nikki Shea. You've been listening to The Road Less Travel. Thank you so much for your company, and I hope to catch you somewhere out there on the road as well. Talk to you next week. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travel is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media.